You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Read together verse 15 through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to drink or to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and it is our joyful expectation that you will meet with us in your word, that you will instruct us in it. We pray that what we are not, that you would make us, and what we know not, that you would teach us. We pray that you would match the needs and desires of our hearts to your word appropriately, and the Spirit of God, you would be our teacher. We want to humble ourselves under the truth of your word and to learn from it this morning. We pray for your assistance and illumination in that. Open our eyes that we may behold from your word wonderful things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do a little bit of a thought experiment with you and take you back a few centuries. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. And so I want you to imagine what it would be like to grow up in first century Palestine in the land of Israel and to be a Jew. And all of your life growing up, all of your worship as a family had centered around Jerusalem and the temple and all that went on in the temple. And from the earliest times of your childhood, in fact, before you even remember seeing the temple, you remember hearing about the temple, hearing about the temple described because your father, who was a faithful, God-fearing, God-loving Jew, three times a year went up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and to worship. And oftentimes he would bring your entire family along so that it became a family experience. And your father was only doing what your grandfather had done and what your grandfather's father had done. In fact, what a number of generations of faithful, orthodox, God-fearing, God-loving, devout Jewish men had done. And that was to make Jerusalem and the temple at Jerusalem the center of your worship. It was so woven into the warp and woof of your being, your culture, your thinking, your upbringing, that the temple was everything. And you can remember times as a child on your way to Jerusalem, the anticipation, the excitement of being able to catch that glimpse of the temple. And you remember going up over a certain hill and there was always that one hill that you would race to the top of against your siblings and try to be the first one to sort of crest over top of that hill. And you could see the temple off in a distance. That magnificent, enormous building sitting on top of Mount Zion, covered with gold and all of the the trappings of it and the light would shine off of it and it would reflect and you could see it from miles away. And even though you could see the temple at Jerusalem, 
you still knew it was hours of walking. Hours of walking before you'd ever get to that. It was much like driving in the wheat fields of Saskatchewan. You can see where you're going hours before you ever get there, and it does nothing but sort of build that anticipation. And everything you remember as a family of going to Jerusalem, and sometimes you would bring with you the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. Other times you remember that that was a bit too much of a of a bother, and so you would wait until you got to the temple, and you would walk into the temple courtyard, and you would there see all of the sights and the sounds and see the animals for sale and the busyness of what was going on and all the bartering and the, the trading and the buying and the selling of the animals. And you can smell the blood and you can smell the incense and you can smell the uh, the people and the animal dung and all that went on, the sights and the sounds. Have you ever been somewhere and you, you catch a scent of something that reminds you of something in your childhood? Have you ever had that happen? And suddenly you're taken way back to something that happened years ago. There's a certain scent, and I remember it from my grandmother's house. Walking into my, it was actually my great-grandmother. She lived on a farm, and it was on a, it was a farmyard. It was an old house. And walking into the front porch, there was a certain scent, and every once in a while I'll catch it somewhere, doing something. There was a certain scent that was just unique to that one room of her house. The rest of the house didn't smell that way. It was the porch, and it was a lovely scent. It was not a, a vile scent by any means. It was, had, you know, the apples were stored out there, and so in the fall it had the, smell of all the produce in the front porch and all of the stuff that went on there and the old wood and the old linoleum and the washer and dryer were out there. So all of those scents were all combined in that one room. And every once in a while, I'll catch a, a glimpse of that, just a just a hint of it. Ah, oh, Grandma's porch. She had a back porch off her kitchen. That was the woodshed. You could actually walk through the woodshed outside, and in the woodshed, there, was, there were two freezers there, and there was two things that were stored in the woodshed, all of the wood for the winter and then all of the animals that were killed during the hunting season. So you could go out there in the late fall, early winter, and you could smell the hanging meat and the wood. And so there's there's this scent of decomposing wood and hanging meat that still every once in a while I'll catch a glimpse of it, a hint of it. And even today, they don't make candles with that scent for some reason. <laughs> I I would buy those, candles or incense or, or some sort of a filter that you put on the vent of your furnace to just bring that back. Well, as a Jewish child, you remember going into the temple and you can smell the blood of the animals, and you can smell the dung, and you can smell the people and the incense and, and just this air about you. And when you walk into the temple, you feel like you're walking among the greats of your religion. Daniel and Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Isaiah. And you can almost feel that nostalgia of being in the temple and thinking to yourself, this is something like what David designed. This is what Solomon built, something like what Solomon built. And you feel like you're walking in the footsteps of men that you revere. There's just no feeling like that. Everything about your life, your worship, your existence, your thinking revolves around Jerusalem and the temple and the worship that goes on there. Got that in your mind? Now listen to these words. Believe me, I tell you, a time is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you worship the Father. Can you hear the scandal in that? No Jew, no Jew would or Samaritan would ever have expected a Jew, let alone a Jewish rabbi, let alone the Messiah, to say there was coming a time when worship at Jerusalem in that temple would be irrelevant. There's coming a time when worship will not have nothing to do with the location. It will have nothing to do with the house that you are in. 
It will have everything to do with the heart that you are in. Almost scandalous. And the shock was not lost on that Samaritan woman because that was said in response to her question, whose religious system is right? The Jewish religious system at Jerusalem or the Samaritan religious system at Mount Gerizim? We have two competing cultures, two competing nations, two competing people groups, two competing mountains, two competing temples, and two competing religious systems entirely, and functions and forms and basis of worship, and two competing collections of scriptural books. We acknowledge the first five books of the Old Testament. You Jews have the first five books of your Old Testament, and all that other stuff. That was basically your question. So, in the face of that, which one of these two competing systems is right? Can we actually get to know the truth? And so Jesus responded with that statement. I tell you, a time is coming when the location is not going to matter whatsoever. And then all that follows in this passage that we just read is Jesus' explanation to the woman about the nature and the place and the purpose and the intent of true, genuine worshipers. And he speaks of true worshipers as opposed to false worshipers. And he describes for her what true worship genuinely was and what true worship should be. And we are learning for ourselves what true worship is and what it should be. And so today and next week and in the coming weeks, we are going to be able to sort of evaluate what we do and where we are at against what Jesus describes as being true worship. And we have to ask ourselves a question. It's a difficult question to confront ourselves with. Am I a true worshiper? So Jesus' response to the woman in answering her question, he points out or shows to her, demonstrates to her three things. First, the ignorance of Samaritan worship. You know, you worship what you do not know. The ignorance of Samaritan worship. Second, the insight of Jewish worship. We worship what we know. And I tell you, a time is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then the third thing he demonstrates to her is the initiative that the Father has taken to secure worshipers to himself. The ignorance of Samaritan worship, the insight of Jewish worship, and then the initiative that the Father takes to secure worshipers for himself. So let's begin with the first one, the ignorance of Samaritan worship, and it's in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. Now I think that was said kindly, I think it was said gently, but it is nonetheless a very stern rebuke. You worship in ignorance. Now basically what he is telling to the woman is, you worship in mental, spiritual, and revelatory darkness. You worship the true God, but that true God you really do not know. Now here's what characterized Samaritan worship. So the Samaritans did worship at Mount Gerizim. They did worship the God revealed in the Old Testament. But they worshiped the God revealed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the God that they worshiped. So they worshiped God as they understood Him from His self-revelation to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and then to the nation of Israel in the wilderness and in the wanderings and in Egypt. They worshiped a God, that God, and it was the true God. But Jesus does not criticize the location of their worship. Do you notice that? What does He criticize? The knowledge base of their worship. Now, was the Samaritan worship wrong for worshiping at Gerizim? It was. God had chosen one place for His name and His people to dwell and for people to offer sacrifice. What was that one place? Well, we learned from the rest of the Old Testament, not the first five books, but the rest of the Old Testament, that that was Mount Gerizim. Or sorry, not Mount Gerizim. You almost thought it was a Samaritan. It was Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That was the place where God had chosen for His name to dwell. That was the place where God wanted to worship. So was Samaritan worship wrong in its location? It was wrong in its location. But its location was not its primary, not its fundamental, and not its most egregious error. 
The most egregious error of Samaritan worship was not its location, but they worshipped that which they did not know. They worshipped the true God, but their worship of the true God was done in an entirely wrong fashion because they did not know the God that they were worshipping. And because they did not know the God that they were worshipping, they therefore worshipped in the wrong place and in the wrong way. And had they known the God that they worshipped, then they would have said, oh, that God is revealed in all 39 books of the canon. And so we can read all of those and we can say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And so as a Samaritan, if they had known that true God, they would have gone to Jerusalem to worship and all of the other problems would have corrected itself. The problem with Samaritan worship was obviously its location, but more fundamentally, the fact that they worshipped a God that they did not know. You worship a God that you do not know. Now, why were they ignorant of the true God? Why were they ignorant of the true God? Because they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. So they did not know the God who was revealed in the book of Joshua, or Judges, or Ruth, or First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. They didn't know the God of Job. They didn't know how God was worshipped and described in the book of Psalms. They didn't know the God of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, or the major prophets, or the minor prophets. Can you imagine how, how much of a hole would be in your theology and your understanding of God if all you had to go by was the first five books of the Old Testament? Can you imagine how, how vacuous your knowledge of God would be? There was a massive hole in the Samaritan understanding of God because all they had was those five books. And so they worshipped a God that they did not know. And they were ignorant of Him because they didn't know the God revealed in all of the Old Testament. And by the way, that's the purpose of God writing all of those books in the Old Testament. It is His self-disclosure. It's His self-revelation. It's Him describing Himself, how He acts, how He thinks, what He says, who He is, All of those books are intended to demonstrate that about God. They're not just there as history. They're not just there as interesting poetry. They're not just there for our for our learning or insight or curiosity whenever we might happen to pick it up and decide to dive into some Old Testament book that we haven't read yet. Those books are there because that was God's means, God's way of disclosing Himself to humanity. And all of that revelation, the Samaritans didn't have. So they worshipped God as they understood Him, but their understanding of Him was minimalistic at best. And so they worshipped a God that they did not know. They were much like the Athenians in Acts 17. They were worshipping an unknown God. Worshipping an unknown God. Nothing more, nothing is more tragic than offering to God worship out of ignorance. Now they didn't know Him in, in more than one sense. They didn't know Him by revelation. That is, they didn't have the books of the Old Testament, so they didn't have all of the revelation of God. It was available to them, but they rejected it. So they didn't know Him in a sense of not knowing who He is by His disclosure. But they didn't know Him in another sense. They didn't know Him in the sense that these people were not the children of the covenant. The Samaritans were like the Gentiles, alienated, excluded from the life of God, without hope, without God in the world, strangers to the covenants of promise in the language of Ephesians chapter 2. The Samaritans were just like Gentiles. They didn't know God not only because they didn't understand what the Scriptures taught about God, but they didn't know Him in the sense that the Samaritans were not the chosen people. So they worshipped the true God, but they worshipped the true God in ignorance, and they were not within the covenant community. And they did not do anything that was required to make themselves part of the covenant community because they rejected the Jews and the Jewish system of worship, which was indeed the right system of worship. And so they worshipped something that they were ignorant of and they did not know. I just want to, just in passing, I want you to notice something. This is key. There is nothing noble about ignorant worship. There's nothing noble about ignorant worship. I've actually had conversations with people who will say something to me like this. 
I'm not interested in all of the doctrine and the theology and the knowing God and the depths of Scripture and all that stuff. I don't want to cloud my head with all of those doctrinal details and knowledge. I just want to offer to God pure, unadulterated worship. I just want my spirit to be open and my mind unclouded. That's the sense of it. Is there anything noble about worshiping God in ignorance? Can you truly worship God if you do not know Him? You cannot. You cannot. And so the goal of our worship and the goal of our meeting together as a community of people is to offer to God worship that is founded in truth and to know the God that we worship. Anytime somebody says, I'm just not interested in knowing all of the doctrinal details and facets of God's character and how they work out and His attributes and knowing Him in that sense, I just want to offer to Him pure, unadulterated worship. That is a, that is a lie. You cannot do that. Because pure, unadulterated worship is worship which is in spirit and in truth. So the first thing is the ignorance of Samaritan worship. Second, Jesus points out the insight of Jewish worship. We worship what we know. Now the we and the you in Jesus' words are emphasized and they're emphatic and they're meant to draw a clear distinction between her and him. Jesus, without without any shame and without any hesitation, identified himself with the Jews, the Jewish nation, the Jewish worship, the Jewish people, entirely. And so he does say to her, you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. There was a line between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus was not interested in saying, look, I think we both really worship the same God. You call him this, we call him that. You do it here, we do it there. You do this, we do that. But in the end, all roads lead to God, the same God. And your worship is just as legitimate as my worship. And who am I to say that your worship is insignificant or wrong or inferior in any way? Jesus doesn't do that. He drew a very clear line in the sand and said, You worship what you do not know. You're ignorant. We, Jews, do worship what we know. We do know the true God and you do not. Now there is a hint in which Jesus is picking up on something that the woman has been doing for this whole conversation. Do you remember back in verse Oh, was it verse 9, where she says, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? Remember that? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Our fathers say that this is the place to worship. You Jews say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. And Jesus hasn't played any of those we versus you and us versus them game any way through the conversation. He hasn't gotten involved in any of that. But here, all of a sudden, it's as if he pulls this out and says to the woman, you have been hinting at this all along, and it is true. What divides you from me is not the fact that I'm a Jew and you're a Samaritan. What divides me from you is the fact that you worship what you do not know, and I worship what I know, and I worship in truth. And so that you, we distinction is intended to draw a very clear line between Jewish worship and Samaritan worship. Samaritans worshipped in ignorance. The Jews worshipped in truth. Now you may be asking yourself, it sounds to me here like Jesus is almost commending or recommending Jewish worship, does it not? We worship what we know. And the question before Jesus, put by this woman, is two systems. Which one is right? And Jesus is very clearly saying, it is the Jewish system that is right. Because we worship what you know. You worship in ignorance. And so everything about what you do is wrong, including its location. We worship what we know, and so we worship in truth. Now I ask myself, if, if it sounds like Jesus is commending Jewish worship, what am I to make of all of the scathing denunciations 
of the religious leaders and the worship that was, went on in Jerusalem. Was it not just a couple chapters ago in John chapter 2 when he went into the temple and overturned the tables and drove out the money changers and called it a den of thieves because of what they had done to his father's house? Was he not righteously and rightly indignant over what they had done to the religious system? So how is it that here, only two chapters later, Jesus can offer this glowing commendation of Jewish worship as being that which we know and that which is true? You're going to see when we get to John chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, Jesus' confrontation of the entire religious establishment of his day and all the religious leaders and the worship and the sacrifices and the service and everything that went on in Jerusalem. He's going to confront that. But keep this in mind. When Jesus criticized and condemned the religious practices of his day, he was not criticizing or condemning true worship or the truth of their worship or the true form of worship or the true God that was worshipped. What Jesus attacked and condemned and fought against was the corruption of true worship, the pollution, the twisting of true worship, the elevation of tradition to the place of Scripture and even above Scripture. He condemned the self-righteous, self-serving, self-centered worship of the people, not the true worship and not the true God and not the truth, but what they had done with all of those things in a very self-serving way. A couple, give you a couple things just by way of application about this. It is possible. It is possible. And, and I think that this is where the bulk of modern Western American Christianity is. It is possible to have and understand and know full revelation of God and yet to fail to worship Him properly. Let me say it again. It's possible to have a full understanding and a full revelation of God and yet failed to worship Him properly. That's where the Jews were at. The Samaritans worshipped in ignorance. The Jews had full understanding. But did the Jews offer to God pure, unadulterated worship? Were they true worshipers? By and large, generally speaking, no. The Jews of Jesus' day were not. Particularly the religious leaders of His day. So it is possible to have a full revelation, a full Bible, to have all 66 books, and to read all 66 books, and to know all 66 books, and to understand all 66 books, and to have a full understanding of all that God has revealed about baptism and election and salvation and sanctification and justification and heaven and hell and repentance and faith and all of the minutia of doctrine, it is possible to have a full understanding of all that God has revealed, even about Himself, and to still fail to offer to Him true worship. That is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. Why? Because the Samaritans had all the spirit and no truth. The Jews had truth, but no spirit. It was a dead heart. The problem with Jewish worship was that they honored God with their lips. They said all the right things. They knew all the right things, but their hearts were far from Him. There was a very real danger that churches like this one face. And I'm aware of it. The elders are aware of it. I'm consciously aware of this. In this church, and this is not to not to suggest that we're better than anybody else by, by any stretch of the imagination. In this church's leadership, we place a high premium on truth and sound doctrine and cutting Scripture accurately. We value truth and we value sound doctrine. We make it serious. There's a lot of uh, effort and energy and time and sweat, blood, tears, and prayer that goes in to everything that is taught in this church by not only the elders, but anybody who stands in this pulpit and teaches 
on a Sunday morning, we take it very seriously. We value truth. We do not believe that the, that the value of sound doctrine can be over-expressed or over-stated uh, at all. The danger with having that type of thinking and that type of a commitment is that on the other side of the pendulum, we, as a body of people, as leaders, as people who sit here Sunday after Sunday and love and value those things, we can fall into the trap of thinking that that in itself constitutes true worship. That as long as we have all of our doctrinal ducks in a row and we can dot our I's and cross our T's and answer all the questions and flesh out all the theological here's and there's and ins and outs of all of the issues that we deal with that we think of, as long as we are sound in doctrine and we're guarding against error, that God is therefore pleased with everything else that we do. And that is not true, necessarily. Because it is possible to have a full understanding of God and a full knowledge of Him and to be very, very orthodox in your doctrine and still fail to offer to God the worship of a true worshiper. So that's where we have to evaluate our own hearts. Am I a true worshiper? Do I think that just because I can and I'm a young earth creationist, and I'm a this many points of a Calvinist, zero to five or whatever it is, and because I take this position on eschatology, and I got this issue nailed down, and this is my position in the covenant, and this is my position on baptism, and I got all my theological ducks in a row, that I'm therefore God is pleased with me. Do you really think it's anything that you do or you think or you believe that pleases God with you? It's not. So now we have to ask the question, Well, if I am to analyze my own heart and ask myself, am I a true worshiper? Then I have to go back another step and say, how do I know if I am worshiping God from the heart? How do I know if my heart is near to God or far from God? That's a good question, isn't it? Might I suggest to you that if you are a believer and your heart has been warmed in regeneration and you've been given new birth, that you know whether your heart is near to God or far from God. You don't need me to give you five tests by which you can evaluate that because you know that. And I think that as a believer, you also know what I have to do to correct a heart that is far from God. Now, I don't want to scare any of you into thinking, okay, well, this last week, I didn't have, I wasn't as joyful or as passionate about my faith as I was the previous week. And so since I wasn't as joyful this week as I was the previous week, my heart must be far from God. Listen, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do to make yourself pleasing to God. You don't have to worry about that. The issue now rests with the heart and whether it is far from God or close to God. All of us, all of us go through seasons of life where things are going on and things are happening and activities, things happening outside of us, things happening inside of us, hormonal changes, changes in our circumstances or our finances or whatever it might be. There are all of these things, internal and external, things that we can control and things that we can't that affect our emotions. It affects whether I feel close to God or don't feel close to God. And so just because you have a down slump or you're going through a season of life when things are drier or you may feel that my prayers aren't even getting past the ceiling and God's not hearing me and I don't feel the intimacy, don't panic over those things. The question really boils down to not what do I feel, but what am what am I experiencing by way of a genuine and true heart before God. Has my heart, for a long period of time, been going in a direction of distance from God, or has it been drawing near to God? And if it has been going at a distance from God, what am I to do about it? 
And the next several weeks, I think, are going to help flesh this out. But let me give you a quick answer. James chapter 4. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's it. There's more to the passage. Let me read the next verses. Because I think that the next few verses describe why it is that one might feel distant from God. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. There's two sides to this coin. It is me drawing near to God and He will draw near to me. That's the promise of Scripture. And oftentimes, if my heart is far from God, it does have to do with personal sin. It has to do with me doing things or saying things or allowing thoughts to be in my heart or in my mind which are not pleasing to God and I don't deal with them. I don't mortify them. We are to mortify sin. We are to kill it. We are to wage war against it. And we find ourselves in Romans 7 where in waging that war there are often times when we feel very distant from God and the promise of Scripture is if you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. How do you draw near to God? There are the means of grace that He has given to us. You read Scripture, you pray. You say, I don't feel like reading Scripture and praying. That's when you need to read Scripture and pray the most. Because you do those things. You apply the means of grace in working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, in drawing near to God, in humbleness, in confession, in repentance, in adoration and praise and thanksgiving, and all of the things that He has called us to do as part of our expression of worship to Him. And when we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. He said, does that mean that this afternoon I will feel better? Not necessarily. You may not feel it for a long period of time. But the Lord will draw near to you as you draw near to Him. All right, so first, the ignorance of the Samaritan worship, the insight of the Jewish worship, they under, they worshiped what they knew. Then Jesus gives us the initiative of the Father in securing worshipers. The initiative of the Father in securing worshipers. He says in verse 23, But an hour is coming and now is. Kind of an awkward phrase. We don't often say that, do we? An hour is coming and now is. So is it coming or is it here? That's difficult, isn't it? In Western mindset, we think it's either coming or it's here. If you're waiting for something to be shipped to you in the mail, it's either coming or it's here. It's not both here and coming at the same time. Once it's here, it's no longer coming. If it's coming, it can't be here or it wouldn't be coming anymore. Does that make sense? So how can something be coming and here at the same time? And yet Jesus uses this type of language throughout the gospel. An hour is coming and already is. How can it both be present and coming at the same time? It's kind of like the sunrise this morning. Before the sun ever broke across the horizon... The light was already here. So in one sense, the sun was here. In another sense, it was still coming. Now that's the best I can do for you. And I think I came up with that on my own. So if you don't like that, I don't know where else to go with it. But that's about the best way that I can use to explain what it is that Jesus was saying. There was coming a time, specifically after His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the birth of the church and the indwelling of the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God came to indwell His church corporately and individually, and we all together as living stones are being built into a habitation of God in the Spirit. When that began, that was when the hour actually arrived. But the one who would inaugurate all of that was already present. So just as the light can be already present while the sun is yet coming, so the one who would inaugurate this new system, this new covenant, this new and living and better way, was already there, and what he came to inaugurate, what he is describing, is not only there in him, but it is coming in reality very shortly. That's the idea. An hour is, and time is coming, and now is, verse 23, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, I may disappoint you a little bit. I'm going to skip over the phrase spirit and truth. I want you to notice true worshipers and false worshipers. We're not going to deal with spirit and truth today. 
Because you notice in verse 24, Jesus uses the same phrase again. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we're going to save the idea, the concept of spirit and truth, the dichotomy, what that means, how that's fleshed out for next week. And I want you to move on to the end of verse 23. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, if there is a true worshiper and a false worshiper, if there's true worship and false worship, true truth and false truth, as it were, or falsehood, if I am to be a true worshiper and to worship the true God in truth, how is it that one is made a true worshiper? How is it that Jim Osmond went from being an idol worshiper to a worshiper of the one true God? Who took the initiative in that process? Did I make myself into being a God worshiper and begin to seek God and establish Him as my God and to serve Him and to love Him and then God saw that and found me as it were because He was searching through the the panoply of people and nations all over the place looking for people who could make themselves into true worshipers. And then He stumbled across Dave Rich and said, what a phenomenal worshiper that guy has made himself out to be. He's a true worshiper now. I'm so glad I found him. Is that the sense of it? In what way is the Father seeking such people to be his worshipers? Listen, always in Scripture, always in Scripture, it is God who takes the initiative in salvation and everything pertaining to him making people true worshipers. I did not take the initiative. God took the initiative. He called me. He chose me. He adopted me. He regenerated me. He gave me a new heart. He turned me from my wicked ways to serve the living and true God. He opened my eyes. He removed the blinders. He delivered me from darkness to light. He set me free from the power of sin and Satan and death and my own corruption. He did all of that. He gave me a new nature in Christ. He gave me a hope and inheritance. All of that was his. And all of it was God's doing and God's initiative. I can take no credit for any of it. So how is it that somebody becomes a true worshiper? It is because the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Do unregenerate, pagan, idol-worshipping, darkness-loving unbelievers seek after the true God? Do they? No, they don't. No man seeks after God, Romans 3 said. Why is that? We saw in John chapter 3, because men love darkness rather than light. They don't want to come to the light and have their deeds exposed and be humiliated before people and have to repent of that. Man loves his sin. He loves his moral darkness. He loves his intellectual darkness. And he loves his spiritual darkness. He doesn't want to be set free into light. He's not seeking salvation. He's not seeking God. No man seeks after God. None. There's none righteous and there's none who do good. There is never a time at which you sought for God. You say, but there, I was, I, I, I remember a time when I was searching and questioning. So does the woman. But here's Jesus' explanation for it. It was the Father who was seeking you. You didn't know that, did you? That's all after you got saved. You thought you were a truth seeker. But you weren't. Men don't seek truth. No man seeks after God. The Father seeks such people to be his worshiper. He's not just out there discovering people who have turned themselves into worshipers of God. It is the Father's heart that yearns for his church, for his bride, for his sheep, for his people, for his temple, for his elect, to take them and to make them into true worshipers of himself. That is the Father's doing. And that is the Father who is doing all of the seeking. There are people who think that God's whole plan of salvation was just God's response to what we did. We took the initiative. And we were lost humanity, separated over a sea, 
drift, adrift on an island, as it were, out in the middle, separated from him, unable to cross the gulf. And God saw this, and he saw all of humanity saying, oh, we want to be saved, please save us, we want to be reunited with you, we want light, we want freedom, we want deliverance. And God just thought, how am I going to make this happen? i got to find some way to make this happen. I know, I'll let my son die on a cross to pay the price for their sins, that'll build a bridge, and then they can come across to me. Great idea. No, that wasn't it. Mankind wasn't wanting salvation wasn't wanting deliverance, and wasn't wanting light. The Father was seeking, seeking to take idol-worshipping Samaritans, idol-worshipping pagans like you and I, and make them into true worshippers for the sake of His own glory. That's what's happening in John 6 with the woman at the well. Now, I think this woman might have said, had you asked her at this moment, are you seeking the true God? And I think she would have said, yeah, I am. I am seeking the true God. I mean, I ask this prophet of God all these questions. I do feel this hunger in my soul. I feel this burden of my sin upon my heart. I do want to be liberated from it. And here is this discussion that's going on between our peoples as to where the true God can be found. And I need to know that. I want to know that. So was the woman seeking? In one sense, from the human vantage point, it looked as if the woman was seeking. But it wasn't. It was the Father who was seeking her. That's why Jesus had to pass through Samaria. If you were to use the language of John chapter 6 to describe what's going on in John chapter 4, it would look like this. In eternity past, the Father gave to the Son the Samaritan woman. And the Son has promised, I will lose none of those that you have given to me. And the Samaritan woman came to the Son, and the Son did not cast her out. But He will raise her up at the last day. Because it is the Father's will that He raise her up at the last day. And the woman could never have come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son had what? Drawn her. That's John chapter 6. Twice, Jesus says, she would not have had the ability to come unless the Father had drawn her. So what's going on? In the Father's heart, in the Father's mind, is this woman in Samaria that He had given to the Son. And the Son said, I will gather her in. I will not lose her. I will not turn her away. I will not cast her off. I will raise her up at the last day because that is pleasing to the Father. Why is it pleasing to the Father? Because the Father is seeking such to be His worshipers. So what is the goal of our salvation? It is to offer to God true worship, pure worship. That's part of why I have been saved. And so what am I to do in response to that? In order to be a true worshiper, a pure worshiper, I understand that God is the one who sought me. And my response to His seeking me is then to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling and get to know the God who has called me to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your grace in seeking us and in making us worshipers. We know because we are still sinful and we know because we are still frail in these bodies of flesh that the worship that we offer to You is at best distracted and insignificant and inferior to what it will someday be. We long for the day when we will stand in Your presence and offer to You pure and true worship from a pure and true heart that is perfect and perfected in holiness. We long for that day, and yet it is not now. We pray that in the meantime that you would teach us what it is that you have saved us to, and that we might be mindful of what is required of us to be true worshipers. All that we do in our worship and all that we do in seeking to please you is a response to what you have already done. We love Jesus because he first loved us. You sought us and you bought us by his redeeming blood. And we thank you for your initiative in salvation. And thank you for taking us who are locked in darkness and delivering us to light 
and setting us free from Satan and sin and transforming us into worshipers of the one true God. We pray that you would conform and mold our hearts to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.